and welcome to another week of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my co-host, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, what's going on? Sean, my friend, I am feeling like I thread the needle this last weekend between work responsibilities, life parent, uh, wife responsibilities, and uh, Gen Con. And yeah. I, am, I am thankful for that Gen Con. I feel like it infused me with the energy I needed to survive that uh, gauntlet I just went through. Yeah, it's one of the reasons I miss in-person conventions so much is because often they do as tiring as they make you recharge you. And the online versions of these events just drain me more. Even <laughs> yeah. if I have fun, it's just more time in front of the computer, more time online. So it's hard for me to do that and get that get that adrenaline coming out of it, you know, ready to take on more work. Uh, so I did participate uh last night yeah uh, which we will talk about in the news a little bit uh but i didn't get any games in because i was working all weekend so mm -hmm. it was just i just need i need that game hole con you know, yeah. coming up in in three weeks i need to be there surrounded by people with masks and vaccinated <laughs> yeah. but surrounded by people to to bring this uh you know bring this joy of this hobby back to me so looking forward to that. Yeah, it, it's, it is really interesting following everything. And, and I looked at all those pictures closely of Gen Con. And, and in addition to, you know, the much publicized uh, picture shared around a lot um, that Chris Pramis took of everybody kind of filing into the, um, the a dealer's Dealer hall, hall, which looked very nightmarish. There were also like pictures of people at tables where I would see like, well, that mask is below that person's nose. And and it's just just enough to kind of, mm, I really want an only vaccinated situation yeah. when I'm seeing those kinds of things. But it's it's true. It's true. And that's what we'll get at GameHulk, unfortunately. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll keep looking forward to that. But in the meantime, there is a ton of gaming and D&D news. Uh, the first bit of news is I just sort of want to recap more for myself than for listeners even on what the release schedule is for wizards of the coast for the for 2021 the rest i think that's wise yeah and and i'm not even getting into the non-book products i'm just talking about the books that are coming out so we are recording on this on the 20th of september so tomorrow the 21st of september and by the time this show drops the wild beyond the Witchlight will be officially released. I pre-ordered mine on D and D beyond and they're telling me that it's available tomorrow. So I will be there ready to read it tomorrow on the 19th of October. So in a month, Fizzband's treasury of dragons releases. And then the month later on the 16th of November, we get Strixhaven, a curriculum of chaos. <sighs> so we've been sort of covering bits and pieces of these news, you know, news items about these things. And to me, they became a big jumble. Yeah. I would have sworn that Strixhaven came first with the more coverage of that than of sort of everything else that led up to it. So it helped me just to, to get my mind around this release schedule. Yeah. If somebody had held a, you know, weapon to my head, a crossbow to my head and said, um, you know, state the order in which these release, I would have ran out the room rather than yeah. try to answer is what it would have done. <laughs> exactly. I, I would have been way off uh, on all of them or I said, aren't they all released tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seems reasonable. Uh, so 
that is the release schedule. So for those of you who are looking forward to all the new goodness, all the new goodness is coming. Uh, and then there are other things, obviously, DM screen, dungeon kit, you know, those sorts of products will also be released. Uh, and we'll cover those as they come out. But I wanted to yeah. sort of get my ducks in the proverbial row here. I'm excited to go to my gaming store tomorrow and pick up stuff. Yep. There you go. Uh, Gen Con has taken place, as we talked about. Uh, Teos and I were on Owlbear Soup. So it was sort of a combined Mastering Dungeon Owlbear Soup production where we covered some news. And then we created a an adventure. And I sort of ducked out before the adventure could be finished. But it was kind of fun uh, you know, to get together with uh, Richard and Justin and uh, and talk about Talk about games and talk about creating games. It's fun. Yeah, and thank you to everyone who came on there. I thought we came up with a really cool adventure. Um, I could easily, like, if that adventure, you know, went through a couple of passes and went out, I I would be very happy with that kind of experience. I thought it was a really neat idea. Yeah, it doing that always reinforces in me the collaborative power of creation. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, yeah. Good time there. Uh, what else did you do or see when you did your Gen Con experience? Yes, I, I played a game of Numenera. Uh, that was really fun. Uh, DM David was there. Uh, so nice. that was fun to see. And it was his first time playing Numenera. Um, he shared a sort of fun story about how he told his son before the game, you know, like, yeah, the DM doesn't roll anything. And, and I think his mm -hmm. son was saying, said something like, well, how's the DM have fun? <laughs> or, you know, some, some angle yeah. like that. Um, so, but everybody else at the table other than me, it was their first time playing Numenera, which is great. You know, here's a Gen cool. Con online game. You're pulling in lots of new people. It's exactly what, you know, Monte Cook games would want. Right. Um, then I played Call of Cthulhu. Uh, this was the case where I think I was the only person who had not played this edition. I have mm. briefly played a very uh, older edition. Uh, I've somehow just in my life just keep missing playing lots of COC, even though it's a fun, I like the concept a lot. And so I was very mm -hmm. impressed by the latest iteration of the rules, which were a lot like old rules, but add some nice little bits. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a, just a two hour scenario, like a learn to play. Uh, nice. And yeah, it was great. I um, did things very poorly, uh, really all week and long. I rolled extremely <laughs> poorly. Like I, I had, you know, they, both games have reroll mechanics. And in mm -hmm. both cases, I managed to create get the same thing I had gotten before nice. again. And I did that three times during the weekend. So I was just failure spectacular. Yeah. Uh, and then I went to the seminar for 13th Age Build a Monster. It was super cool. If you've never seen that, it doesn't matter whether you know 13th Age or not. You will appreciate this. I'm sure it'll be on YouTube and past years on YouTube. And it's a super helpful look at the design of monsters and the same creative collaborative thing we're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, we came up with a really wild monster between the people in chat and all the brilliant designers uh, that were there. It was super neat. Um, yeah, and then and then the owlbear soup thing was just so much fun. I had a glass of that. Yep. One of the things I wish I could have been at but couldn't was the conclusion of the Moonshade Isles campaign that was uh, Adventures League compatible, that was run by Bald Man Games. Uh, Eric Mengi brought a very uh, difficult project to wrangle to a wonderful conclusion, if any of the rumors that I've heard uh, are true. So you can pick up many of those adventures. I think there are something like 14 trilogies already up on the guild, as well as some one-off 
uh, products. And then the rest of the campaign will be available out and about where Bald Man Games runs its games. And then it'll be up on the DMs Guild. So, uh, you know, congratulations, Eric, and, and all the Bald Man Games team on putting together a uh, really memorable campaign. In other news, we have the Actually, before D&D... you you go move oh, forward. Yeah. Add a question: Is Moonshade then going to have another story arc? I do, I don't know. I know that they are going to be tied in to an upcoming campaign, okay. but I don't know if it's set in the Moonshades or if Baldman Games is moving to a new area. Because I recall at one point Tony Winslow Brill is going to be taking over the reins of the moonshays but it may be that with all the changes to al those plans change so we'll have to look into that and see i'll, I'll reach out to tony and ask we can yeah i, I know that the bald man games and uh maybe even the game hole publishing um is going to have like a special relationship with adventures league in terms of the content they're creating and where it fits into the campaign but i don't know if all of the details have been released or if some of the details that i had heard earlier have changed but i know there's going to be something uh something special going on there okay cool and that leads us to next weekend's gaming which is the dnd celebration <laughs> uh so yeah uh if you wanted to play D&D a lot, because Origins is coming up the weekend after that, you have your chance to play a lot of, uh, a lot of games. So the D&D Celebration uh, obviously is going to look at uh, Wild Beyond the Witchlight and its release, and as well as giving some looks into Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons and Strixhaven. Uh, there's going to be panels. There's going to be live stream games. And there's going to be a chance for you to play in online games. So, you know, all of that's coming. Teos, did you have any details on anything noteworthy there? Yeah. So last week they released the schedule of all the events that are taking place. Um, you can still sign up for some games for D&D Celebration. A lot of them are full, but you can get previews of the AL uh, Witchlight uh, Adventure and the Epic. I think there are still some seats available for those. So if you go out to that, dndcelebration.com you can join in the fun uh, i've signed up for some of that um then all this week they've got uh previews by various folks they've chosen from the twitter world who will share excerpts of various kinds um there's going to be something on thursday that's preview-ish and then really it starts the 24th to 26th where really we have celebration and there's a full slate of panels and streams some of the cool ones Friday, 10 a.m., these are all Pacific times, intro to the AL. Love it that they're starting with that. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, 11 a.m., a streamed game featuring cast members from Star Trek Discovery with special guest Will Wheaton. Nice. And he's been kind of withdrawn from the scene, so it's neat to see him yeah. come back into this. Yep. Uh, then, you know, sometimes you like diff- different folks like different things. Like maybe you like to watch the streams. Maybe you want the, the hard news. So 3 p.m. is your is your first peek at that, where Chris Perkins, Stacey Allen, and Will Doyle, the main designers, uh, discuss the adventure. Uh, so I think that's great. Yes. I've been waiting for, counting on my fingers and toes, you know, 20-plus years, because I only have 10 fingers and 10 toes, 20-plus years to, to see them actually talk to the people that designed the adventure. And, you know, and hopefully we will have Will and Stacey on this show. Yeah. 
in a couple of weeks to do the same thing to discuss the adventure. Yeah, you're right. And, and it reminds me when I first saw, I don't remember if it was Tomb of Annihilation, and I think it was Storm King that I saw a map and I'm like, wow, that really looks like Stacy and Will's style. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it feels like they're designed too. And then Tomb of Annihilation, I'm like, wait a minute, this has got to be them. Right. And, and it was, it was like, I don't know if they weren't credited or it was a very small thing, but then you start learning like, wow, they were a big part of this. And, right. and so to now see them get to the point where like, okay, they're getting that kind of, uh, you know, spotlight that that's great. Cause they deserve it. Uh, they're incredibly talented. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that that will happen. All right. Yeah. So Saturday, uh, there's a 10 AM panel on how to bring young players into D and D. 11 a.m. is a Strixhaven discussion. That's where Amanda Hammond, uh, Jeremy Crawford, and James Wyatt will break down that book. 2 p.m. is a similar discussion of fizz bands with James Wyatt. 4 p.m. is the Circus of Sound, a D&D musical. Mm-hmm. Wow. What could possibly go right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that sounds lovely. Uh, and then Sunday, there's a 3 p.m. panel, Future of D&D. This has been very useful in the past years. Very exciting to, to see what they say. Uh, Ray Winninger, Liz Shu, Chris Perkins, Jeremy Crawford, um, all talking about what might be on the horizon. And then there's a whole number of other silly, exciting streams, panels, things like that. So if you look at that schedule on dndcelebration.com, you can see all that and pick the ones you want to watch. Yeah, there's really literally something for everyone yeah. uh, whether you're into live streams panels news you know silly uh silly things it's it's all great and it's all there at dndcelebration.com and of course if you want to play the games uh baldman games is again doing their thing and from thursday through sunday you can play a variety of games including as teo said the new seasons intro adventure and epic so check that out there's this little thing called the diana jones award which every year goes to some deserving new up-and-coming or different uh designers or themes or you know something in the game industry and this year the winner was a nigerian board game company called Nibcard. and teos has more information on that yeah, I mean, I love the Diana Jones Award from its funny story of this like rescued remnant of an Indiana Jones RPG cover right. to just how they approach things with the sort of almost secret society of smart RPG designers who come together with just wild things. They can be concepts, they can be people, companies, you name it. So it's a very, very different type of award and I think very meaningful because of how it's created. They're really looking at things that are impactful. And in this case, uh, Nibcard is a company that's helped create a board game business in Nigeria and in really all of West Africa. Uh, They've helped create 33 different board game titles and basically taken it from zero to 100 on the creation of board games in Africa, right? Just Mm -hmm. really accelerated. They've organized, uh, I think, starting in 2016, an annual board game convention to springboard growth in that area. Um, so it was a neat, neat to see that, that, uh, spotlight on a different part of the world that we don't think about as being a huge board game source, but is, is growing due to these initiatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they have an emerging des- emerging designer program where they name several individuals as finalists, similar to the main, uh, award. And in this case, the winner was Jian Shim, 
she is the co-creator of Field Guide to Memory, which I participated in through Kickstarter. Really neat idea where you get uh, sort of daily emails telling you about things that happened, that you notes you sent yourself from the future uh, as, 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 as the one. Um, and then there are, she's done similar other innovative RPGs and games sort of along those lines. Um, so really well-deserved because that's just that kind of thinking that I think stimulates a lot of game designers to do things differently and move beyond the normal concepts right. of, of what we think of as an RPG. Yep. Awesome. In addition to the Diana Jones Award, the Any Awards were announced, and there were several big sweeping winners. And again, Teos brings us the details. Yeah, so Renegade Studios um, really wins a lot this year with their silent RPG. That is, folks, you don't talk. Uh, Alice mm -hmm. is Missing. That won Best Game, Product of the Year, and several other awards. Um, then Swedish, Swedish publisher Free League also won several awards, including the Fan Favorite Publisher Award. Um, and you know, they made alien, they've made several other really good games and then they publish other games as well from other people. Um, uh, that's a big move forward for them. Uh, this felt to me sort of like many years ago, Pelgrain press won this kind of level mm -hmm. of awards and, and really got attention. And so I think this is one of these things that sort of cements free league and renegade game studios. Um, yep. Also, the Brancalonia Spaghetti Fantasy Setting Book uh, got silver for Product of the Year and several other awards. And this is a 5e D&D setting that's based on Italian folklore and Italian history by an Italian company called Akiron Books. That's really cool. And then several awards won by Heart, the City Beneath. This is an RPG by Rowan Rook and Descartes. Won Best Setting, Silver for Best Game. Uh, one best writing and one best layout and design. So a couple of these games really resonated heavily with um, first the the, the uh, judges that choose these and then the mm -hmm. voters that were selecting them. We've talked about this before. The Ennies is a, a kind of imperfect, very imperfect award thing in, in that that dichotomy between judges picked it and then fans pick it you never know what you're going to get at the end compared to what you started with. Um, but it is still a great way to spotlight new companies. And so yeah. it still does its purpose. <laughs> yep. And you can uh, find that at any-awards.com. Uh, switching over to sort of industry news, there was an interesting Twitter thread and then several follow-ups uh, revolving around Paizo. Uh, so earlier this week, Paizo fired two key customer support staff, and this resulted in an outcry from people saying that they had been doing excellent work and that the firing was motivated by something other than, you know, their their work. Uh, so Jessica Price, who was a former employee at Paizo and has spoken out against Paizo's uh, higher level personnel, uh, came on. Twitter and said, now that the people that I was sort of protecting by not speaking out are gone, I'm going to speak out. And she, she did speak out. She <laughs> yeah. shared accounts of lots of business practices that people found very questionable. Uh, some, some of the behavior of higher level employees, um, including things like sexual harassment, um, you know, she disclosed 
and the the backlash against Paizo was noticeable. Uh, several Very. people canceling their subscriptions and calling for resignations, and you know that that whole that whole thing that happens when when truth or perceived truth gets uh, gets uncovered. And we have to obviously say that you know there's always three three sides to every story. Uh, you know, your side, my side, and the truth. So, you know, then other Paizo employees stepped in and and gave some you know feedback, some some things that they agreed with or disagreed with, and and it became a public airing of of grievances and of you know taking sides and and giving yeah. explanations. And I guess recently Paizo was able to respond. Yeah, so they tried responding. Their first response was was fairly bad by most accounts, uh, bringing some very funny. If you ha- if you still had the people that you fired, they could have fixed this statement for you. <laughs> that was hilarious. Uh, but it was sort of a we're at Gen Con and so we can't focus. But oh, these are our core values. Um, there's now another update uh, from Jeff Alvarez, uh, who is one of the people that the thread goes into great detail about. Um, saying that they're going to, you know, they take everything very seriously, that this does not match their values, and they're going to be speaking to managers and staff and trying to uh, work on improving situations. Um, but I think that th- there are a couple things that come out of this. I mean, th- there's there's the, the granular level of these accusations, which are corroborated corroborated by several other people, and I think reflect what many of us who are in the industry have heard across years. Mm-hmm. And Paizo has sort of managed to pro- project one thing while there's this undercurrent of discussion about other things. And that may happen to some extent at any company, but, but I think it had gotten to the point where it, it's not surprising to see things like this come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if we may disagree on any particular point. What is the truth? What is someone's perspective? It's clear that adjustments should be made. Yeah. On the other side, what what really resonated to me with like the hashtag Paizo accountability that's out there and all of this is that we are at the point, and I think this is a good thing, where you may be able to get away with some number of years of operating in certain ways, but it will probably get out in today's day and age, and it will result in this sort of problem. And so they're probably, you know, hopefully companies will see from this, all companies, not just Paizo will see that one should operate differently and have better practices uh, because it will, it will, it's not only the wrong thing to do, but it will financially hurt you in the end. Um, and this is terrible timing for Paizo, right? I mean, they're trying to make big announcements of various initiatives they have. They're, they're, you know, this happens right when they're at Gen Con, which is typically a time when they make a lot of big announcements. And so it all really hurt their landing at a time when they really need to win people over to their second edition. Mm-hmm. Um, so other companies take note, right? You know, it's a good time for every company out there to take a look inside and say, what are, what are we doing that someone could post about? Right. Yeah. Yep. Uh, any company in the long run reflects the morale, morality and ethos of their leadership. Yeah. And, you know, while employees, individual employees can be wonderful people and do wonderful work, if there's problems at the top, they will trickle down. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, and, and I'm sure we'll see more of it with more other companies in the future. You know, we've seen it with several companies in the past. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it's it's just an interesting it's interesting that a game design role playing game design company, you know, in this day and age is, um, you know, under this sort of scrutiny and is being held accountable for actions of the past. Yeah. And I, but I think that the type of accusations, I mean, there's a funny, I say funny because it's, it's quirky. There's a story that, that she tells about the carpet not being replaced and how the right. carpet had been there for years, never cleaned, and it's causing people to, to feel like they can't breathe. And, you know, it's having health implications, which is a thing, right? It's a scientific sure. thing from when those kinds of situations. And the, the, it's shared as an example because she has such a documented we reached out and asked for this and we asked again and we tried and like they're almost running like a, a guerrilla warfare campaign to try to get this carpet cleaned and replaced or fixed or whatever and and how management is reacting to that and that is a systemic problem right this is a, a concrete example that sounds sort of silly like the carpet but it shows if you have management fighting employees and and sort of pushing them off and and obfuscating what's going on and, and, and every person trying to prove that they're a yes person to the manager above them and therefore doing nothing, right? That's a, that's a bad situation and, and, right. and companies can get that way. And yeah. it doesn't matter what the topic is. If you are operating that way, there will yeah. be big problems down the road. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, we'll keep an eye on that as well. So, uh, and speaking of sort of controversial, uh, company decisions, uh, critical role has clarified its intellectual property use. Uh, so like any large company, uh, critical role, you know, let the fans basically do what the fans wanted. And f f they were creating fan art and they were creating all sorts of things based on critical role IP and critical role was everyone's friend until you get into the business side of things. And then especially if you're going to say, have a show on Amazon, yeah. uh, you know, the rules kind of change a little bit. Uh, yeah. So critical role put out a statement about their, how their intellectual property could be used. And since it limited fans in some ways, uh, well, barely limited fans in some ways um, it, you know, it was met with the typical outcry of sellout or, you know, why are Money you stepping on my creativity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. When it's just, you know, welcome to living in the world. Yeah. So, so they've clarified their, their IP use rules. Yeah. And, and they, they also have filed various um, trademarks, uh, which mm -hmm. can be seen on the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. None of it's absurd. I mean, it's name of their characters and their worlds and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. But they're they're taking that step because what unfortunately can happen legally is that if a company allows wide use of what could be its trademarks and doesn't mm -hmm. enforce them at all, then it can legally lose those, right? And right. you can have a situation where somebody could make a book about a certain part of your world. And then if you want to make that part of the world, that other entity could claim that you can't. And it's your right. world, right? You, yep. you could reach that level legally if you don't sort of stake your claim to it. Um, so I, you know, what they basically said was, Hey, can you do commercial stuff? No. I mean, it's our stuff. You can't just 
you know, right. commercially make things. Uh, can passive revenue be allowed? Like I'm making a YouTube show where I talk about what happened on Critical Role. Yeah, you can do that. Uh, you can make the money that YouTube gives you because you're talking about us or something like that. Can you use our logos mm -hmm. and trademarks? Generally, no. It's all, mm -hmm. I thought, very straightforward, very reasonable, and just right. things companies have to do. Yep. It's true. So all that is there at critroll.com. A, a new issue of Arcadia is coming out, and it has three new and amazing articles. First is Subclasses of the Hag by Jessica Markram. Uh, they, we have Monstrous Components by V.J. Harris, and then The Emerald Exchange by Bianca Bickford. Yeah, um, these all look great. Uh, I've had a, a sneak peek that we got for the show. Um, the, uh, the the Monstrous Components is is great. The Emerald Exchange is great. Really, they're all fantastic, as, as if you've seen Arcade Issues before. Beautiful art, really good writing. Um, I was really glad to see Bianca's work in this episode. She does so many neat things as we'll talk about further. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that will be coming out shortly. Uh, speaking of new releases, we have a new release by MT black. I'm always following MT black because, you know, he, he was one of the first people to make a name for himself via this new medium called the DMS guild. Yeah. And he was probably, you know, one of the most successful people folks to do that and so you know you follow his career and now he's actually moving off the dms guild and into drive through rpg creation to save that 20 percent uh yeah uh, that you would normally have to give to wizards of the coast if you publish well, on the dms guild and importantly you can also publish elsewhere uh, yeah, which gives right. you a lot of right so it's, it's not only do you get a better cut but you also have the flexibility to sell it in different ways um, yep. The other thing that Empty Black has talked about, uh, and, and, and as you said, he's often been a person who tells us, sort of wakes us up mm -hmm. to, to, you know, smart realities and, and smart moves. Yeah. There are all these tools that OBS has only on the drive through side and not on the DMs Guild side. Uh, things right. like how it creates a mailing list for you when you send out mm -hmm. an adventure to people with, who, who buy it. Uh, and now you can use that mailing list to promote your next product. But mm -hmm. you don't have that on the DMs Guild, right? And and there's no right. reason why it shouldn't exist, but it doesn't. And so, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So he has a new release called The Secret of Strange Light Hall, an adventure for fifth edition designed for characters of first to fourth level, optimized for five characters of APL3. Um, it takes place in the world of Iskandar, which is a campaign setting that... Uh, MT has created, mm -hmm. although you can easily transfer it to other worlds. Uh, so that is available. You know, it seems like a pretty cool tier one low level adventure for sort of a one to two shot, uh, one to two shot campaign. And, you know, he creates great stuff. So you can check that out if you wish. Yeah. And mirroring what we talk about, Empty Black believes a lot in easy to run. Right. Yes. So he, he says, again, requires minimal preparation to run. And I believe it because he has always done really well at that aspect of things. Mm -hmm. And the final product we're going to highlight, uh, speaking of Bianca Bickford, is called a Sararax Collection of Complex Traps. Uh, it contains 13 complex traps for tiers one through three. Uh, it, it was collected from submissions to the Dungeon Masters Challenge, which will wrap up at D&D &D Celebration yeah. uh, uh, next weekend. 
So this was produced by Bianca and edited by Kat Kruger. And it has the, these traps, these complex traps that people turned in. They collected, uh, you know, the best of them, t- took the top, took the 13 that they wanted and, uh, and put them out as a book. And we knew this was probably going to happen. Yeah. So it was only a matter of time. And, and, uh, did you have any of the traps you wanted to highlight? Um, well, a couple of things. Yeah, so I, I did like a number of them. I mean, the, the traps uh, cover a really nice range. Like there's one that's like, you know, you're going to be fed to a giant frog because you're reduced in size and you're going to fall through a grate. What do you do? I mean, that's wild, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, another one, you're trapped in a classroom and it has, you know, these various things you must figure out about the classroom and what was being taught and what past students failed at and things like that. Um, Bianca has a trap that's really cool that there are low level traps, high level traps, very, you will, there's no way you're going to look at this book and not say, Oh, that one, I'm going to use that one in a thing, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's, there's enough variety that it will please anybody. Uh, if you want really complicated, if you want, you know, complex, but still easy to drop in, like there, there's a a great variety. Uh, the designer names, you know, there are a lot of familiar names, uh, people that I dig there and then some names I didn't know, which is excellent. And just, mm-hmm. I love that this is, you know, wizards helped this. They didn't do it, which I would have loved if they'd done this to, to right. show us what people created and yeah. tell us about it. Um, but, but they did say you can do this, right? They put it up there as an option and, and Bianca and with the editing of Kat Kruger pulled these t- together. So we get to see all these submissions that people gave during that more open part of the uh, challenge. So I, I'm really glad this exists. Yeah. And and you read them and you're like, wow, this one didn't win or, you know, this one yeah. didn't win. What were the ones that won like, right? I mean, it's, oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting to see the creativity of everyone in the hobby. Um, yeah. So this, this just uh, gives you a taste of, of what's out there. Yeah, and you know one other thing that I'll mention before we close out news is the uh, there's been a huge success to this Kickstarter Tanaris RPG, um, mm-hmm. which is an RPG adventure and supplement for Fifth Edition. It's on Kickstarter. By the time you hear this, you'll just have a few days left to back. They are at one point almost six million raised so far. Um, they've got a host of of stars like Ed Greenwood and Amy Vorpal and Skip Williams and you know, on mm-hmm. and on Rob Schwab, Jeff Grubb that are all working on this, uh, Shane Hensley. So, uh, if you, if you haven't heard about this, it's worth checking out and see if this is something that interests you. Um, we were contacted, uh, to see if we would mention it. And I think it is notable enough to mention for sure. It has some neat, absolutely neat yep. aspects. Awesome. So that's out there on the Kickstarter. Now let's get into our main topic, which is the continuation of our starting strong theme, where we look at the hardcover books and adventures and check out how those adventures begin. And, you know, in the past, we've talked about several of the of the books starting all the way back from the original one. Uh, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. And we we had lost tyranny of dragons, and then tyranny of dragons, yeah. tyranny of dragons, all the way from tyranny of dragons <laughs> that that very first hardcover. Um, we are now up to Storm King's Thunder and uh, Tomb of Annihilation, so we're we're, we're getting there. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's start with Storm King's Thunder. Uh, so the, these two are almost a contrast to each other. I yes. feel. 
uh, in terms of in terms of how they start. So for Storm King's Thunder, you open the book and you have to almost read a few chapters, yeah, uh, to before you actually get to the start of the adventure. You know, and I'd be curious for listeners to tell us: Do you like having a chunk that you read? You know, like does that establish in your mind an understanding of everything? so that then you can run a better game or do you want to kind of get started and get that later? Yeah. I mean, that, that is, that is an important question. And and for some designers, that is the question. Um, Because, you know, for storm Kings thunder, we, we get the introduction and it goes on for pages. And some of these pages have very little art. You know, it, it talks about the ordining, um, so almost right away, w- instead of like, here's what you do in the adventure, it's here's the ordining. This is the so- giant society's hierarchy. Why are storm giants at the top and hill giants at the bottom? And wh- why might that change? So we get all this information before we know what the characters are actually going to and do. Things like the factions, right? And, and, and it has to do the work of introducing the factions in case you don't know what the five factions are and what they're up to. Yep. Um, it's 19, 18 pages before you get to, to where you're going to actually run something. Right. And all of this, this information is interesting. Mm-hmm. The adventure concept is really deep and dynamic and cool. Uh, It doesn't, though, tell you how the characters are going to interact with this cool story. Um, And that's something that, as long as it plays out somehow in the long run, is fine. But DMs, especially new DMs, might need to hear that information sooner. Uh, So that's how the, the book itself begins. Until finally, several pages into it, you get to the actual running the adventure and adventure synopsis part. And for everything that you just heard, the adventure synopsis is actually pretty light, uh, assuming that you're starting at first level. Right. Uh, it, it's like, okay, you go to this village and you go, it's like one sentence tells you what's in each chapter. Um, so, we, and I don't know if it, if it, if it expertly meshes the the information you've already received with what's going to be in the adventure. I feel like after reading both yeah. of them, I'm still a little lost on, all right, as the DM, what am I actually running here? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I thought the synop- synopsis was on one hand good, but on the other hand, shallow and didn't truly capture what I needed to mentally prep. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of things like the, the, the flow chart too, where I've talked about this on my blog. It makes you, it makes you think there are all these various choices, but there really kind of aren't. And and so right. it almost like it, it creates a misunderstanding of what you'll flow through because of it's not getting and, and for all the detail we got, <laughs> I feel like it's strange that the adventure synopsis doesn't truly prepare me for say, you know, how they're going to wander around in chapter three. Uh, through all these various quests and things like that, or, or yeah. how chapter one compares to chapter two. It, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it falls into the trap of you have a grand story 
with machinations of giants and dragons and and crackus crack crack eye kraken crack crackle uh kraken and right and and you know all of this but never is there this impetus for the characters to care yeah. right right from the start um and and you don't necessarily need to do that but you need to let the dm in on this in on the the plan in on the play um and it's just it's not there and the dm if the dm does what they ask dms to often do and read the whole thing then you're like oh okay here's how i could do it right. if i want to but it's not right there. For and it says game. that it's it's sort of funny that at the beginning it says, you know, you should read this completely before you run it. And it's like, great. Do you know how few people will do that? Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're <laughs> right. Mean, it, it, you know, one way to look at this is this is an amazing adventure compared to, say, the Dragonlance series of old AD&D adventures mm-hmm. where you are clearly playing in someone else's world and you are so small compared to the story that you're, mm-hmm. it, you, you feel constantly like you're not as big as the actual story. Um, right. And there's a series of Dark Sun adventures that are like this. And so here, the players are far more significant, far more tied to what's happening. But there are parts where that isn't true because it's such a big tale. And, mm-hmm. and the DM isn't given enough. It's not called out, right? This is not an adventure that calls out its weaknesses and tells you how to deal with them, which it should. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's, if you go back to Tyranny of Dragons, right, it starts out, things are on fire, and you need to put them out. Even if you don't know the whole story, you've got an exciting call to action right there. Uh, And it feels feels concrete. It feels like you're peeling back the layers, I think, in a more concrete build-up level. Mm -hmm. One of my biggest things with this adventure is what will later happen after chapter two. Chapter two feels like you're priming the pump and then you just drop it and you go into this, go around and do various little quests things that diffuses that energy. And then it picks up again, almost randomly. Right. And those are things that make it very difficult, I think, to have a very good run of yep. uh, this adventure. And certainly I was one of the play testers way back then. And this was something that, you know, even at that stage, it was true that it was hard to, to do, to feel that energy growing. Um, because it's, it, we talked about this with rhyme too. If you tell me that there's a horrible unending rhyme mm-hmm. and I'm making a character and I'm a hero, what do I think I'm doing? Right. I want to do that. Right. I want to stop the giants. And if you tell me that nobody's talking about giants all of a sudden, but we were just attacked, right. what's next? Yeah, somebody wants you to deliver some wine to this village. No, I want to go fight giants and stop this and do something right. and be heroic. And... Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so let's jump forward and look at the actual adventure that you are are set upon uh, at first level. Uh, it is a town called Nightstone, Nightstone. I believe. Yes. So right away, uh, they give you several potential reasons for going to nightstone perhaps you've heard rumors of goblins in the area and uh, a water davian noble uh, is in charge of is the steward of nightstone and you know so 
maybe she's offering a reward for anybody dealing with the goblins. Or Nightstone is a retreat for wealthy nobles from Waterdeep. And so you can earn money by offering services as guards during a hunt. Okay. Okay. Uh, there's an enmity between the elves of the Ardeep forest and the residents of Nightstone. And so the steward, Lady Velrosa, is looking for mediators to, to help do this, uh, to help settle this dispute. Or Nightstone Inn is an amazing inn with great food and comfy rooms. And, and the innkeeper there uh, always asks adventurers to do something uh, for him. All of those are all of those are fine. Mm-hmm. None of those are great. No. Uh, all they are are reasons for you to be in a certain place at a certain time, and they have nothing to do with giants. They have nothing to do, and you don't need to spell out the plot of the whole adventure right now, but have it related to what is happening. Um, in at, at by the end of the story, you want us to tie back to the beginning, and I think that's because this is an adventure that you know one of its flaws is it doesn't know what it's doing fully. It hasn't committed yep. because mm-hmm. it has information that the various factions are hearing about giants. So and and there's always this tension of wait, are the giants flat out attacking or are they not? Are people aware or not? Should your heroes be aware? Because if they're aware, then they want to be heroes and, and solve stuff. And again, we see that tension here. We're not exactly sure what the right. players should know and how their motivations should be set up. Right. Now, what happens when they arrive at Nightstone is that there has, has been an attack, giants dropping boulders from their cloud castle onto the city, and they steal this obelisk. The, then they leave. And got the goblins, aforementioned goblins, come in and start to ransack the city because the uh, the residents of the city fled to a cave that the goblins were using as a lair. Yeah. Okay, so start off with a cloud castle was seen flying over Nightstone. Go check and it out. Nothing's, nothing's been heard from them since. Yeah. Boom. Now you... Now you have everything you need. You've got your giant connection. You've got the impetus to go there and to stay on this track of giants throughout. Yeah. It's funny that that wasn't an option. And really, that's that's such a good start. You don't then need any other options, right? Just someone hires you to follow up on this rumor that somebody saw this cloud castle attacking and yeah, and, and as it is, it, it's a little confusing, and it's okay. This part, you know, I like actually a lot of how Nightstone is written. Oh, yeah. Um, a lot of it is very clever how it works for a low-level party. Um, but, yeah, it's just that start is, is, is a little shaky, and it can create this confusion where you don't understand, are these goblins and ogres part of a giant threat? And you could possibly even go through it all and not quite understand what took place here. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's true. Um, you you want to, as the DM, make sure that you let the characters know somehow, whether it's through investigation or through NPCs, that this is what the giants did. And the goblins are just sort of uh, taking advantage of a harsh situation. But the actual adventure within the, the town itself, I, I liked. Yeah, I, you know, I liked uh, all the small pockets of goblins moving here and there. Uh, 
you might as the DM need to move things along a little bit more quickly because there are a lot of areas and a lot of individual or pairs or trios of goblins. And if you sort of do every single one, it could be, okay, you fight three goblins. Oh, you fight two goblins. Oh, you fight three goblins. Oh, you fight two goblins. And you could do that like 10 or 12 times in a row. It is made better by how well it's done. I mean, goblins are all given names, um, yep. Though we aren't quite given non-combat resolution, but they have names and they're often doing absurd things like two goblins chasing chickens or two of them with pumpkins yeah. on their heads playing a game of blind tag, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, that's, why, that's why I love it. Yeah. And so as the DM, you almost might want to just pick out three or four of these. And then after those three or four, the rest of the goblins figure out what's going on and they flee yeah. and lead the characters to the caves. Uh, so you can move on without it becoming a little too repetitious. And there's some aspects that get a little hairy, maybe like there's the specter, but that should be mm. okay because it's only if you mess with the grave that you probably should know not to mess with. Right. And it's confined by the graveyard. Um, we have a Zentarum spy. That angle is sort of fairly open. Um, mm-hmm which I think this adventure actually does fairly well, that it has a couple of open elements in this first starting part that um, do seem to have the right pieces and the right phrasing so that I think most DMs will have a good result with it. Yep, I, I agree. Uh, you know, and you could even tie that Zentarum element into something giant-related, mm-hmm. um, depending on the direction that you want to take your your game. Um, so then your so second after- level... Yeah, so then your second level and the goblins and the ogres are holding many of the villagers hostage in the dripping caves and the trail pretty much leads you there. There well, are and we have two events though. Oh, the, tell me about the two events. One being the Zentarum. So. Yeah, so so you can find this Zentarum spy who's kind of picking off goblins in one area and and how you resolve that, you may kill them or work with them or kidnap them, and then a few, a little bit later, at some point, just after you've cleared up the goblins become second level, a bunch of Zents arrive. And their jobs, they're here to take over the town. They've been sent a message by this spy. And one of them is, in fact, in love with this spy. So so there's all this possible tension that can play out in different ways, depending on what you think about the Zentarum, what happened with the spy that you did or didn't find, and so a lot of open play, but I think the DM is given what they need to resolve it. And at some point you're going to have mm-hmm. to figure out a way past these in Tarim. Yeah. Uh, if you go to the keep and you meet the guards there, they will, they have opinions. They don't want this in Tarim. In fact, this in Tarim will ask you to off the guards. So there's a lot of interesting yeah. tension here. Uh, right. Then there's another piece that I don't think I would run this uh, because it feels a little repetitive. It's not bad, but these group of orcs called ear seekers are escaping from elves. They kind of, got hurt by them and there so they decide oh look that town let's go there and that's where we can mount our stand and you get this wounded chief 20 orcs and an orc eye of grumsh which is significant for second level parties yeah. but we're given some guidance of basically it's, it's sort of again like the goblins spread them out and mm-hmm. let the players sort of create their ambush and so that might be super fun or it might not be depending on how you're feeling about you know your desire right. to get going but at the end of One or two of these events, you then reach third level, and then you go to those dripping caves. Right. And as Teo said, as the DM, you you sort of want to get a feel for your party. 
Um, you know, if you just spent four to eight hours offing goblins, you don't want to spend another four to eight hours picking off orcs, probably. Yeah. Now, maybe maybe that's exactly maybe what your group but, yeah. loves, and if that's the case, go for it. Um, but you know, but if if you're if you're like many groups that I have seen, talked with, and dealt with recently, you don't have as much time to play as you used to. And you sort of want to prog- progress through the adventure at a pretty decent clip and level up at a pretty decent clip and take in the story. Uh, yeah. And so if you're going to do that, you'll, you can use that, but cut it down to, you know, the wounded chief and 10 orcs and they all attack at once or, yeah. Yeah. yeah if it had waves. been more of a siege yeah. defense type thing, it might've, I think been different right. enough, but yeah. Yeah, but it's exactly. There. And then, uh, you know, and then uh, for, for me, that's that covers what I want to cover about the beginning of adventures. But since it is supposed to lead you to, to fifth level, you know, third level, there is the dripping caves. Um, you get the prisoners, lots of information. Uh, negotiation is possible. So it's cool there. And then you're at fourth level. There's the tower of Zephyros. Mm-hmm. Uh which can, you know, it's a cl- he's a cloud giant who wants to help the PCs um, and will take them to their next place if they agree to help uh, in the investigation of what's going on. Yeah, and we have some encounters that can, again, happen during travel, one to two. You can have some Cult of Air people, which ties into Princes of the Apocalypse, who are trying to get the favor of evil cloud giants. Oops, they're at the wrong castle. Then yep. the <laughs> other side of things, good dwarves are dropped off by a silver dragon to attack this cloud castle and disable it. And so you have to sort of convince them that this is a good giant and all this. Um, mm-hmm. I can see some problems with... I, I can see the, both of these being a little difficult for DMs to run um, mm-hmm. with the amount of information given. But... But they can also be fun if you want them, or you could just, you know, go straight to where they're going. But they they're going to be fifth level level at the end of this, so you know you probably need a reason to explain how they became fifth level. True. Um, what Zephyros does well, I think some fo- some DMs have found this a little too fantastic um, and sort of a little jarring. You you know, this cloud castle shows up to take you somewhere. Um, but what it does do is establish that there is clearly a different perspective between different giants. And that's an important thing to establish yeah. early on that it's not like just all giants are attacking. There's a variance of opinions. And maybe if you can find some that align with you, that would mm-hmm. pay off. So I think that is useful yeah. that this shows up. It's definitely important information to deal with a giant early in the adventure yeah. to just make it clear sort of what's happening on, on a meta level. Uh, so after I you know, read over this, begin, I ran the first couple levels of this mm-hmm. and then now reading it over again, I'm beginning to wonder if there is any one ideal way to lay out information <laughs> in a big adventure, because, you know, it feels like if there's too little information, there's a problem. If there's too much information, there's a problem. If it's too linear at the beginning, well, I don't know if it can be too linear at the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's not linear enough at the beginning. Uh, it, there's a problem if it's too linear and doesn't allow choices then yeah. So it's, it's always a moving target. I feel like that we're trying to hit. And I think with, with shorter adventures, um, 
there is an uh, sort of an ideal way to do it. Yeah. With large adventures, I don't. I just don't know. I think it most so much depends on the theme of the adventure, the tone of the adventure, and the content of the adventure. Well, I think what I would say is that you know you choose you start choosing your approach, and then it's important to look at whatever that approach is and think mm-hmm. to yourself, what's my impact on my DM? Yes. So it's not that there's one one only way to do it, but I think that if you look at this adventure, to run Nightstone through Tower of Zephyros, you don't need that much world information. And so you could have actually made it a really short intro, gotten right. into the action, and then hit people with more info after this so that a mm-hmm. starting DM could literally just run this if that's all they want to run. But hopefully yep. their group gets hooked and they feel confident and they do a great job. And now they want to read the Bible of the story of old giants and the ordning and all those kinds of things and the Zintarim and, and other factions yeah. and, and, and then get into the bigger thing, right? Yeah. Now, during my skimming, I may have missed it, but the, the cloud giants that attacked and then took the obelisk, they never said why they took the obelisk in the early adventure, did they? I think they say that they believe it may be an artifact from um, the lost. Uh, okay. The lost Astoria. Yeah. Is that yeah. Astoria. Okay. Yeah. But, but does it come up later or is that just, I don't recall that. Okay. Because if it does come up later, that's a point where you as the designer need to just put in parentheses, you know, as the, as the characters will see in chapter blank, yeah. this obelisk is now being used to blank. Right. Uh, just just to make that, you don't need to spell out the whole story of it, but just point to why the giants actually took the time to attack this and whether it was, yeah. whether it's important, uh, you know, important in the long run, because that's a clue that the characters can then, dri- it can help drive them through their choices in the adventure. Yeah. So listeners, uh, and or Will Doyle, Stacey Allen, if you know what, where this obelisk went, let us know. Yeah. Cause I, I've, I've lost track of that. And this okay, also, cool. this beginning part was not there when I ran my adventure as a play test. Uh, so I, I, this part is, is something I've read, but not ran. Gotcha. Cool. Uh, so that's, uh, storm King's thunder. It's it's beginning. Yeah, and can I just say that there's yep. the other way you can start off this adventure is by running other adventures. Where if you if you run Lost Minds, it works fine, but they give you this advice for running other adventures that's sort of like here's how to abandon the adventure you're running <laughs> and switch to this one. Yeah. And I don't know if that was clever or not. Maybe it is because maybe it's one of those things where you're running an adventure and you don't super love it. And you want a way to jump aboard, but I, I didn't find the advice was super compelling to me or super useful. It, it it felt a little like, you know, here's how to switch train tracks in a convoluted way, or, or I, I don't know. Yeah. It wasn't smooth. It didn't. Yeah, I didn't it love didn't, it. The only thing I did like you. is they have ideas for uh, bringing the elemental cults into the adventure. I thought that was pretty useful right. advice, but yeah. Cool. All right, so now let's talk about Tomb of Annihilation. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this segment, this is sort of the polar opposite of what we just saw. Um, for Storm King's Thunder, there were, was chapter after chapter or you know, section after section of the backstory of what's going on in the background. Whereas with Tomb of Annihilation, it's sort of just stated bluntly right up front. 
um, in, in a very short way. The introduction gives the premise of the adventure. Hey, there's this death curse. People who have been brought back from the dead via raised dead resurrection, they're dying. And here's an important NPC who hires you to fix the problem because she's dying. Yeah. Boom. It's all clear. It's all there. The characters right from the first moments of this campaign know what their goal is. Yeah. Uh, that's super powerful as a storyteller, as a game master, as an adventure designer to get everybody aboard and know what they're doing because then they are motivated to make the choices that lead them to, to fulfill that goal. Uh, yeah, I, I like that aspect a lot. Um, this is, I'm biased. This is my favorite 5e adventure because it, it hits all my buttons. It's like it was written custom for me. It's the kind of thing I like. And so I often, uh, also I think it's weaknesses are things that I handle easily. So I mm -hmm. tend to think it's better than it maybe is. I think was what some other DMs might think. Um, but you know, one thing that is rough about the beginning is while it gets started quickly in terms of you go to Portney and Zaro, you go to Cholt, you're there. Um, it then has that problem of you're in town and there are all these options. Mm -hmm. Um, so you're in town, there are all these merchant princes you could talk to. There are all of these quests. We get like 10 quests. Uh, we have the city with all of its locations. We have all of these um, guides that you could possibly meet. And I think that's where a DM suddenly does have to do that heavy reading to pick out what they should do. And I just feel like this adventure could have had a, yes, you're arriving to this location and there's going to be all this info that you can turn to, but here are these first three quests. Mm -hmm. And then the next five that you can choose from. And after that, choose from any of these others. Uh, and here is the initial set of maybe two um, guides that you can choose from that are going to mm -hmm. take you to nearby areas. And then later, right. more guides that you can choose from to go into later. And then that would help you get out into the jungle in a more orderly fashion, right. give the DM more time to prep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, hey, there are these cool dinosaur races. What does that have to do with the death curse? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> so as the designer, as the DM, make it something they have to do in order to get a right. clue to, to where to go next. Yeah. And you can give lots of choices. You can say, this NPC has the next clue. This NPC will give you this clue one of three ways. Win the dinosaur race, uh, save, rescue this person from, from jail who's innocent, or you know this third thing. Then boom, you you have the choices. The DM, the players have have a choice if you want to present it, but then they know what the clue is to the next thing. And as as Teo said, it goes in an orderly fashion, where you can control the. You know what the pace is going to be, and you can control it. You know when the leveling is going to happen, and you can control it. Uh, and it doesn't take that much more work if you have all of this great content and fun stuff to do. Take that next step of just putting it into an orderly fashion yeah. for the for the DM. And the same thing with the death curse, you know, like you're saying that ticking clock is at odds with super fun things like go to the dinosaur races. And mm -hmm. I think that if the death curse had been described as it's kicking in versus it's fully here, 
Right. That would, you know, then there'd still be this urgency because something really horrible is going on. I mean, we can't raise people and people who have been raised are withering. That's great. Mm -hmm. But, but it's almost a point where you feel like your employer is just going to die and you should race as quickly as you can to try to save people. Right. I mean, if you care about people at all, which I mean, you're heroes, you're supposed to, um, Mm -hmm. then you don't have any time for races. Yeah. Yeah. And the the important yeah. The important thing with the ticking clock is that the players get to see the clock. Yeah. <laughs> right? It, in, if you don't show the players the clock, the ticking clock doesn't mean anything because they don't know how much time is ticking away. And, uh, and, and the players don't know that they have 79 days to save their employer. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, is, as written, you're going to spend a long time going through the jungle. And so one of the things that can happen is you just feel like you're a failure. You have yet again another set of weeks walking through the jungle where you did something important, but it wasn't solving the death curse. And Mm -hmm. if you felt like, well, we don't know when the death curse is getting worse, but it seems like it's getting worse. Mm -hmm. But we have time. We have time to gather information before it gets worse. Let's go out there and find what we can do. And as we get these clues, oh, look. Now the death course has gotten reached another stage. It's clearly accelerating. All right, take what you've found and act on it. Then that's right. a little better pace, right? And I, I wrote a supplement on the DMs Guild because of that, based on what I did when I ran it, because this was a big problem. If I had just um, done it as written, it would have been very jarring for that experience. Yeah. One of the things I like as a DM and as a designer and as a player even for published material is to have the very first encounter, you know, like combat encounter of the campaign be a scripted one, not mm-hmm. one that the DM is making up on the fly. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, that's what Tomb of Annihilation does, right? It, it's it got this really strong call to action and really defined goal. And then it's, well, important, Ianzyro, you can really do anything. And <laughs> here's, you know, here's a thug who will attack you. Here's a gladiator who, if you best, will join you. But that's not, you know, depending on the DM, that could be the most anticlimactic right. thing. Now, I want that first taste to really tie everything together and move it in the right direction yeah. and reinforce the theme. And, you know, the the very first combat involves somebody who's dying from the death curse. Okay. And then right. you get a clue from them. You know, make it, make it memorable. Make it something that really stands out. Yeah, and there's some great, great, I mean, great parts of this adventure. I love all of the pirate piece, which is this whole auxiliary portion that's yeah. you know over on one side of the map, um, and and you can have so much fun with that. But again, it's it's not corroborating. It yeah. you know none of it aligns with your mission, so it's a, it's a sidetrack. But it could be aligned, and and yeah. it would have been great if they had given you just those little pieces of information you need to align it, right? Uh, what do the pirates know about the Thans, for example? So in my campaign, yep. I wove together the pirates with the Thans. The Thans were manipulating mm-hmm. the pirates and you could learn about the death curse through understanding what the pirate and their Than uh, influencers were doing, um, yep. which then tied into when you get to the city where you see Thans, that, that then has a lot of payoff because sure. you've been seeing the stay in involvement and you're now understanding the implications of it. Yep. And I loved everything from Omu on. 
mm-hmm. in this adventure I loved. And that's where I started. I ran something <laughs> else, got the characters to fifth level, and boom, they were in Omu and they were, you know, using tracking down yeah. the cubes and and dealing with the the Yanti and then into the Temple of the Nine Gods and uh yeah. And, and you know, here we go. And both you and James and Dracasso have uh, adventures that can start you off to bring you here to, to change up the death. Those, those, those can yeah. uh, be found on the DMs Guild. Um, yeah, I, I, I adore this adventure. This is one of my favorite adventures across any edition, certainly for 5e. But I, I love all of what this gives. It, sure, it has weaknesses, but again, they line with what I can handle. And so I, I have trouble criticizing this because I do adore it so much. So it's, I think hopefully this is an example to listeners of we may criticize something while loving it dearly. And, uh... Yeah, yeah. Th- th- this isn't criticism. This is just a discussion of, mm-hmm. you know, different ways to come at uh, the beginnings of adventures yeah. and things that we like and as DMs, as designers, as players, uh, different ways you can handle it. So any other thoughts on the beginning of Tomb of Annihilation? Did I say that I really like to move annihilation? I believe you said that you really did enjoy it. Yeah. And and that's good. So we only have four adventures left. Could it be true that we only have four adventures left to discuss the strong starts of Waterdeep Dragon Heist, Acquisitions Incorporated, Baldur's Gate, Descent into Avernus, and Icewind Dale, Ram of the Frostmaiden. So we will uh, cover those hopefully in the next couple of episodes. Yeah. And... You listeners out there, thank you so much for coming and spending some time with us every week. We hope we are entertaining and informing you up to the standards that you have for us. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can via Patreon by going to patreon.com slash MMP. Teos, where can people find you on the social media stuffs? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at AlphaStream. And my latest blog post on AlphaStream.org is arguing about whether the DCs of things, for example, picking a lock, should stay static or scale as you level. And uh, that has been fun to discuss with people on the Internet. I have heard that discussion going on for three probably years now. If not before that, just I didn't know that I was hearing that discussion. (laughs) And it is is always interesting and fun to hear different people's takes, except from Mike Shea. Yeah, he's so wrong about everything. It's amazing. We don't don't want to hear it anymore. No, but uh, the funny thing is Mike can actually very closely line. But it's one of those things where when you when you. You know, how you say a few things about this issue can throw one person rapidly to the other. It's almost like suspension of disbelief, right? When one little thing comes into the equation, someone will go, no, I cannot have that in my game. Right. Everything's fine except this. And that can't be, you know, you can't have that. Yeah. Uh, So. And that's why I like this issue because I think it's one that, you know, gets you thinking about the design of things you do. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. So go to alphastream.org and check out Teos's blog and leave him angry comments where do we find you sean oh uh, you could find you could comments. find me in the fetal position under my desk uh or on twitter at sean merwin you can also go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com to discuss anything and everything that we talk about here or if you want to follow the podcast itself on twitter the uh tag is at mastering dnd and Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, now that we have braved giants and the jungles of Chult, what should we do now? 
Let's ride a cloud castle right back to Cholt and have some fun there with some dinos. D- uh, some zombie spewing. Oh, yeah. Undead dinosaurs. Everyone's favorite. Yeah. Bye-bye. <laughs>